0: The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. I ask that you please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Lord Acton famously said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Absolutely, that's right. Joseph has just been put in the place of chief executive officer of the greatest empire in the entire world at this time. One really interesting tidbit, tidbit here about the power dynamic that's going to be found here in Genesis chapter 42 and 43, 44, 45, etc is, is that... Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis 45, verse eight, he, God has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I think this is just me reading into the story and imaging it in ways that are not accurate. But I think I've always viewed Pharaoh when I've read this story as an old, tired, powerful ruler but as I've studied it recently in this summer, statements like this one have caused me to reconsider those preconceived notions and it seems that Joseph was actually older and obviously much wiser than Pharaoh and Joseph is the one calling all of the shots. This guy who is sitting on the throne looks to Joseph as a father figure. He has become the absolute most powerful man in the world and the de facto ruler of the empire. The question now is, What kind of ruler will Joseph be? Will his character change now that he has power? Power corrupts. And there could be no greater test than that which is presented to him in these chapters that were read to us this morning. Joseph's dream have come true. These dreams that he had about his brothers coming and bowing down have now been fulfilled. He is standing there and they are coming to him and literally laying on their face before him and they don't even know it. And the question is, how will he respond? As you may have noticed from our Old Testament reading this morning, this is a massive text, and there are lots of details and lots of twists and turns, so here's how we're going to approach it. We are actually going to cover this exact same text a week from now. This Sunday, we are going to set our attention on the angle of Joseph And next week, we will examine his brothers This week, we're going to take a very focused and a very narrow view On only a few verses in this text In order to flesh out two main points Point number one today will be vengeance And point number two, mercy Let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless the time that we will spend now in his word God, we thank you We thank you that you have given us such a rich and dynamic, historically accurate representation of what took place in the past. And Lord, we thank you that this depicted what would come in the life of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that this has weight and bearing on our lives now, today, and that this can lead us and guide us for the future. God, we thank you that your word is powerful and it is active that it is functioning today to cut away and carve out areas of our lives that are not in accordance with your will. And I thank you, God, that your light illuminates areas where we have fallen out of love with you and more in love with ourselves. Please, God, today help us by the conviction of your Holy Spirit to see exactly where we are failing to love rightly and where we are failing to obey completely so that we might repent fully. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our story today begins nine years after Joseph was released from prison. For two years, the great famine has been depleting the land of all of its life. I love the way that Jacob's words are written here in the first verse of chapter 42. It reveals not only that... Jacob was old and kind of crotchety at this point in his life it also reveals I think the way that he views his other sons he says to them why do you look at one another what's he saying in other words he's saying don't just stand there do something he's like why am I still having to tell you guys that there's food somewhere and we're all starving go get it God was using this drought and this conversation to to knit back together this family that has been torn apart for years. Actually, at this point, it has been 20 years. How do we know that? Because it tells us in the previous chapter it was 13 years from the time Joseph was sold into slavery to the time that he is now released from prison. And then there were seven years of plenty. Now we're in two years into the famine. So we're actually at 22 years After they have sold their brother, they are now going to encounter him once again. So, in doing all of this, God led these ten brothers directly into a situation that could have easily been abused by Joseph. He could have taken his power, his authority, and used it to crush them. He's now the most powerful man in the world. He looks so different that they don't even recognize him. Of course you know the Jewish people Especially at this time Grew their beards long and full And they had big curls and tassels And the Egyptians were the exact opposite In their culture You shaved every bit of of hair on your head And you had no beard You had no hair They didn't recognize him at all and if this is similar to what we see later in the Egyptian times, they would also put on eyeshadow and makeup that would make them look very different. And they come in and they don't recognize Joseph even in the slightest. He literally now has their lives in the palm of his hand. He could starve them to death, he could imprison them, or he could torture them if he wants to. But even in the midst of this dramatic performance that we see taking place in these three chapters by Joseph, he never ever does anything out of spite or out of vengeance. It is never his goal to injure them or to harm them in any way, as we will see as we go through these passages. Of all the godly characteristics that we've seen displayed in the life of Joseph so far, perhaps none of them shines more brightly than his refusal to abuse his power in order to avenge himself. Nobody would have looked on that and said, Oh, I can't believe you did that. From our perspective, from a worldly perspective, you would look at Joseph and think that he is completely within his rights to do whatever he wants to do to them. So let's get very practical here. I want to share with you two things that are very evident in the life of Joseph that caused him to avoid the sin of revenge. First, we see that he has tenderness. Notice that Joseph has a surprisingly soft heart towards his brothers. Look a little bit closer to me at the conversation that takes place in chapter 42, verses 21 through 24. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. This would have been the ideal moment for Joseph to break out of the old Hebrew vocabulary and basically say, Hey, you've been punked, and, and now you have a date with the noose. But instead, Joseph hides his face from them and he weeps. He breaks down and he cries like a child. Joseph seems to be a really good actor through these chapters. He's really excellent with his poker face most of the time. But there are a few occasions when he actually sobs. And we're not going to look at the final occasion until next week or the week after. But what I do want you to see is in this case and one that follows later is that it's when they are recounting their sin against him that his heart is softened rather than hardened. Rather than being filled with bitterness and anger when they say, Do you remember what we did to Joseph? Instead, he is filled with compassion towards them. This makes it very clear that Joseph had not been consistently fantasizing about how he might use his power to avenge himself if he ever did come back into contact with his brothers. He was not hoping for just some angle to get back at them. He was not rehearsing some elaborate Monte Cristo plot to destroy their lives. Part of the reason that Joseph was able to genuinely seek their good, even after all that they had done to him, was the fact that he had a genuine, heartfelt, loving tenderness toward them. He desired their good over his emotional comfort. Getting revenge feels great in the moment. It makes you feel powerful and strong and like you've gotten away with something. I finally fixed the situation. Justice has been served just for a moment and then it feels horrible but you see that he doesn't perform that at all he doesn't seek that personal emotional comfort that he would receive from that kind of vengeance perhaps the most common issue that arises when counseling married couples is this there is no longer a desire for the other one's good but only a hunger for some kind of personal comfort or ease or satisfaction. This results in kind of like a cold war of passive-aggressive uneasiness for a few days, and then, when even the smallest little thing in the household goes wrong, the dam breaks, and all of that bitterness that's been welling up within the heart of the couple pours out in a flash of white-hot anger, and then there's this escalating arms race of who can say the most hurtful thing, and nothing is actually resolved. Then both the husband and the wife end up being sad and being frustrated and wondering, how in the world did I get here? In a word, you got there because you were seeking vengeance. But there's a deeper reason why Joseph refused to pursue revenge. First, we considered tenderness. Now, let's consider trust. It has been the heart and the underlying theme of the entire story of Joseph so far this summer that God is sovereign. It seems that by the time Joseph saw his brothers, he himself has come to the realization that God is sovereign, and that God is sovereignly working with his hand over this entire situation so that this realization when they come and stand before him was not, you know what? God has given them to me so that I might take matters into my own hands, but God has brought them here so that he might take matters into his own hands. Consider Joseph's words when he finally reveals himself to his brothers later in Genesis 45, verses 4 through 5. I know this is slightly past the scope of our reading today, but if we don't understand this statement of Joseph, then we don't understand his motivations for any of our reading today. He said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Not only does Joseph not want them to suffer, He doesn't even want them to feel bad about what they did. Once there is an admission of guilt, and once there is a repentant heart, Joseph immediately makes it clear to them that there is absolutely no ill will against them for their sin, and that their sin against him might as well be as far as the east is from the west. It might as well be buried in the Mariana Trench. The very fact that Joseph let nine of the ten men return to Israel with grain, is a clear indication that he was completely willing to put his brothers in God's hand. He was not willing to stand in the place of God as judge over their soul. He entrusted judgment to God alone. So you might ask, why did he end up keeping one of the brothers there? And if you want to know the answer, you have to come next week, because that will be central to our sermon then. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, gives us a really great explanation of what was taking place in Joseph's heart during the story. It says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good notice that it does not say don't avenge yourself because that person is going to get off scot-free rather god promises repayment He promises that he will exact vengeance. So leave it, as it says here, to the wrath of God. Let's break this down for just a moment so that we can be very clear. There are two reasons why you should never, ever seek revenge. First, because if you exact revenge, you're going to mess it up. When somebody sins against you, if you respond with vengeance, then you are only escalating the sin problem. You are making it worse. You are not capable of doing what God must do by doling out a righteous punishment. Your vengeance is full of sin. It is full of sinful words and sinful thoughts and sinful motivations and attitudes and actions. Your vengeance is not capable of being done without sin. Your vengeance and your wrath is unholy, whereas God's is holy. Which brings us now to our second reason why you should never seek revenge, which is because God is the righteous judge. Let me explain. When somebody sins against you, there are only two possible ways that their offense is going to be paid off. And none of them, none of the possible actionable responses involve you at all. The only two ways that this could be paid off is either that their sin will be paid for when God pours out his wrath on them forever, which, by the way, is not something you should desire even for your worst enemies, or you are going to be standing next to that person someday in heaven, and you are going to look at them and, and realize that thing that they said to me, that thing that she did to me, Jesus died for that. This person is my brother. This person is my sister. This person is in complete and total unity with me for eternity because that thing that they did that really hurt me, Jesus died for that. So on earth, what right do we have to exact vengeance that only God himself is called to do? We have no reason to put our foot in his place. Your offenses and mine are paid in full. So when we seek revenge, you're talking about taking up a mantle that is the robe that only the righteous judge of heaven can wear. So put the gavel down and give it back to the rightful judge. So what does vengeance look like in your life? Do you relive people's offenses against you? you? You you relive those conversations? You think of all the ways that you wish you would have responded, the things you wish you would have said to them, the ways that you would have liked to humiliate them or destroy their reputation or credibility? Do you respond like my kids do when you're provoked? Athens, why did you hit your brother? Well, because he hit me first. Is that a reasonable response? Absolutely not. Does that make it acceptable? No, but for some reason, that's the same answer we get from most adults. Why did you say that to her? Because she said this to me. Why did you do this to her? Because she did this to me, or vice versa. There is a constant act of passing the blame, just like we see in the Garden of Eden. Satan's tactics don't change that much. About 15 years ago, there was a show on television called Dirty Jobs. You guys ever see that show? I I think I maybe saw two episodes. I remember only one of them distinctly, and I know exactly where I was when I saw it. I was sitting at my grandmother's kitchen table, and the the television was kind of off to my right. We were playing cards together. We were playing spades, and I look over my shoulder, and I, I begin to get intrigued by this television show, which I don't think I'd ever seen before, and I was just enthralled because there was a guy on this episode whose job was to put on a rubber diving suit and to submerge himself into septic tanks To search for lost rings And whatever people accidentally flush down the toilet For those of you who don't know Septic tanks are in places like I grew up around in a lot of farms Where their people don't have access to the local sewer, sewer lines So they just kind of run the sewer out of their house And into this big tank where everything collects And eventually a truck will come by and drain it Those things are absolutely disgusting Septic tanks are sewer tanks. And this guy's job is to dive into it and swim around. He can't see anything. He doesn't have any eyesight in there. Just feel around and squeeze everything until he finds what he's looking for. (laughs) Heidi's gagging. I'm sorry. (laughs) Who decides, you know what I want to do with my life? I want to just put on a rubber suit and get into a bunch of sewer If I remember correctly, at one point, Mike Rowe asked this guy, what percentage of the time do you actually find the item that you're looking for? And he said something like, and I haven't seen this for 15 years, so I don't remember exactly, but he said something like, not always. Sometimes I just dig around in there for a long time and I never find anything of value. And then Mike Rowe makes some kind of joke like, well, you think? Yeah, Yeah. who would expect to find something of value in there? If I had to make a guess, I think the most common place for acting out of vengeance within the people who are in this room is on the internet. Not in large scale or life-changing ways. This is, this is not one of those things where you're attempting to destroy somebody's life, but it's in the little things, the little phrases, even sometimes the emojis, the, the things that people send just to mock or, or to annoy somebody, to troll an individual. You, you respond to something that has offended you. Something that probably even shouldn't offend you, and you respond with venom. I spent an extended period of time this week reading YouTube comments and Facebook comments and tweets and moments and whatever you call Quora posts, and you know what? It was basically like the same thing as swimming around inside of a septic tank and looking for something of value. Do you know why I think that is? I think it's because everyone thinks the pen is mightier than the sword, so... You go scorched earth on anybody who says something that you disagree with. You've probably all seen that that comic, that meme of honey come to bed. Oh, I can't. Somebody on the internet is wrong. You just have to disprove them. I say they, but I must confess that the main reason that I almost never post anything on Facebook or social media of any kind is because this is something that I think I am very tempted towards, and I think so are you. The anonymity and the freedom to say whatever you want from the other side of a keyboard or a phone allows us to let the worst things in our heart escape onto the computer, and we are displaying our vengeance for the world to see. I can tell you just from the things that I saw people who I know are Christians saying things this week that are very, very, very upsetting. In fact, they give a black eye to the church. And so, when I speak about vengeance, I'm not just talking about to asking someone to duel you with a couple of pistols. I'm talking about the little ways that we seek to respond with bitterness and anger, just to get back at that person in any way that we can. When you feel that you're tempted to speak out or say something or do something out of vengeance, look past Joseph. Joseph is a great example but he's not the hero of the story here. Look past Joseph and look to Jesus who is our perfect example. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 22 through 23 describes him as as this. It says, "He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued in trusting himself to him who judges justly." Don't seek revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Trust Him. He will take care of it. Which leads us now to our second point of the morning, which is this mercy. As we've seen over and over and over this summer, Joseph is supposed to foreshadow the true King, Jesus. He gives us a picture of what the Messiah would come to do. Last week, we saw that salvation was accomplished in the the collection of all of this grain. This grain was meant to be the salvation of the physical lives of the people of that region. But salvation was not yet applied to Jacob's family until a very important step takes place. Before the brothers are welcomed into Joseph's arms, there is first a process that Joseph goes through to break his brothers down. Joseph sets their sin right in front of them so that they will be forced to confront the wickedness in their own past and in their own heart. We're not going to get deep into the details. We're going to drill down a lot more on this next week. But for now, let's simply list a couple of things that take place here. Joseph sends them back to get his one full-blood brother, Benjamin, to ensure that his brother is safe and alive. One brother was put into a pit just like Joseph had been put into a pit by them. Then on the way home, what did they find in their bag? They find a bunch of silver. The last time Genesis speaks about these brothers carrying silver toward their home is when they had just earned this money by selling Joseph as a slave. Then through an elaborate drama, Joseph sets sets up a scenario in which Benjamin, the favorite son, is going to be forced to be a slave in Egypt. He says... I don't want all of you to stay here. That would be wrong. But I want that one. He is not going back with you. And think about this for a moment. This would have been everything that Judah in particular would be hoping for. Judah was in line to be the inheritor of everything. Because remember, the first three brothers are passed over because of their sins. Judah has much to gain if the favorite son is out of the picture. And it is Judah that we see repenting and being broken completely and going before Joseph and saying, let me have your ear. Please listen to me. Don't do this to him. We will not go back without him. Please take me instead. There is a complete radical transformation and the question is, how do we get to there? Next week, we're going to look at exactly the tests that took place that broke down the brothers so that they would come to a place of repentance. But today, I want you to see something else. Today, I want you to see that Joseph himself Was using these trials These tribulations These hardships These brothers literally went home And it says we could have gone to Egypt twice over by now If we would have gone In other words They were literally starving themselves To keep themselves from having to go back there They were physically feeling pain Because of what Joseph was putting them through But this elaborate drama That was being set up by Joseph Was a scenario in which They were going to experience mercy It was not for their evil But for their good once I, uh, I visited somebody who was in a hospital He was not a believer uh, He was very, very sick And I thought this person was about to die And this man asked me the question Why is God doing this to me? And I said, I don't know But I think maybe it's to get your attention So that you will repent And so you will believe in him Perhaps you've asked that question many times God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you letting this happen to me? Why are my circumstances the way that they are? Why are my finances like this? Why do people dislike me or treat me poorly? Why is it that I'm being falsely accused? And honestly, that's not actually a bad question to ask if it's asked with humility and with the right motives. But take another quick look at Genesis chapter 42, verse 28 again. They say, one of the brothers says, my money has been put back into my sack. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? The brothers here were certain that God was at the center of this. And it seems that their view of God was that he was punishing them for what they had done. They, they almost view God like a, a form of karma. Little did they know that God was actually in the process of blessing them with this very event. They were being blessed through this matter more greatly than they could ever imagine. At the cross, Jesus accomplished salvation. He accomplished salvation for everyone who will ever be in heaven. His blood was spilled for every sheep that will ever be redeemed. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. But I wasn't born for 2,000 years after that took place. This salvation was purchased before I was ever born. Yet, I lived part of my life, my childhood, outside of the family of God, under his wrath, in my sin. And there has has to come a day when there's a transition, where that salvation which was accomplished at the cross is then applied to the life of an individual like myself. The same is true for you. Although the details look very different for each person, every Christian ultimately has the exact same testimony. Basically this... In some way, you would say, God brought me to the end of myself. And maybe because of your health, and maybe because you heard a sermon that just pricked your pride and popped it like a balloon perhaps it was because some terrible circumstances happened outside of your control but whatever it is you realize i desperately am in need of god i need his love i need his forgiveness i need his grace and then god shows you that your sin is truly an offense to him and that you are unworthy to be near him yet by the blood of jesus you have been made pure you have been made blameless in his sight and then you commit your life to being conformed to it. To him in your actions and live differently. Why? Because you love your king and you want to be like your king and you want to do what pleases your king. And that is the testimony of every truly saved person who has ever lived. That is just a long form ex- explanation of the simple word repentance. Joseph designed this elaborate scheme to break his brothers down and mercifully lead them to repent. It was his mercy that caused him to test them and put them in these uncomfortable situations. It was mercy leading to repentance that caused them to experience trial after trial after trial. But all those seemingly horrible roadblocks were nothing less than a stepping stone to their salvation. Physically speaking, they were being saved. And at the same time, we can see this is true in a spiritual sense for all who are saved, spiritually. In Psalm 73, Asaph describes his confusion by asking God why the wicked seemingly get everything that they want, why they have stores full of money, and they have clothes, and they are healthy, and it uses the term saying they are fat. In their culture, that means good. They have all the food they could possibly want. In other words, why is Charlie Sheen, quote, winning, and Nabeel Qureshi is dying of stomach cancer? Why is this happening, God? And God reveals to Asaph in a very poetic, very psalm-like manner that he does intend to work all things out for the good of his people. He first does so by revealing to Asaph that what it looks like when we are winning here on earth to God, when we are getting everything that we want, when we have and have and have and collect and absorb and seem to be doing great, that that's not actually winning at all. Psalm 73 verses 16 through 18 says, but when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's saying, Asaph is saying, I don't get it. I don't know what this means. I can't understand it on my own. And then it says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Last year, They tore down a house right next to mine and started rebuilding it. And that resulted in my garage being infested with roof rats. I don't know if there's any more abominable creature on the planet than roof rats. They are literally the worst. So we got some traps and we baited them with some peanut butter. And when one of those rats would come out in the middle of the night and they would find that peanut butter and begin consuming it, they probably felt like, I am the king rat. I have everything that I could possibly want. This is like heaven to me. And they are thinking that until the, the trap snaps on their neck and they think nothing else ever again. The people that Asaph was looking at who seemed to have it all were actually just gorging themselves on something that was actually going to kill them. They had nothing of substance. It was just a mirage. God was using these things, these things that look like blessings to them to put them in a precarious place. However, for every person who is saved and for every person who will ever be saved, God is working in and through every last experience of your life to lead you to the point of salvation, and he doesn't stop there, but because he loves you, God will continue to use a billion seemingly random events every day of your life to weave together into a way that you are going to repent continually. And so that you will, in an ongoing manner, become more conformed to the image of Christ. What kind of king was Joseph? That's the question we started with today. Did absolute power corrupt? Absolutely. He's the kind of king who showed mercy to his brothers who sold him into slavery. Well, what kind of king is Jesus? He's the kind of king that shows mercy to those who rejected him, who rebelled against him, to his disciples who deserted him, to Peter who denied him. He's the kind of king who gives forgiveness to people like you and I who have run from him and who have sinned against him and who have lived our lives in opposition to him, who have basically done everything we can to say, I don't want you. I want to be far away from you. I don't like your standards. I don't like what you want from my life. I don't believe you. I don't trust you. Some of us don't even had, had times in our lives we didn't even believe he existed. Every step of the way, Joseph's brothers were revealing that they were not worthy to rule over the others. When Jesus walked the planet, he was the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd, and he showed through his life that he's the kind of guy you should desire to follow, that it's good. He he seeks the benefit of those who are around him. Meanwhile, he describes the Pharisees and the Sadducees as rulers who their only purpose is to steal and kill and destroy Yet the people of Israel conspired with the Romans to kill the only leader who ever actually cared for them. And you and I, if we were present physically with them, we would have been screaming out with them, crucify, crucify him. That would have been your fist in the air and it would have been mine. Our actions before our salvation screamed out that very thing. But Jesus is a merciful king to all who look to the cross and who repent and who believe. We see in this picture of Joseph, the king standing over those who have scorned him with open arms. And in the story of our salvation, we see the same thing in a much greater way with Jesus Christ. Just like Joseph was mercifully working out these details for their good, God is doing the same thing for his people. So please feel free to ask the question, why is God doing this to me? As long as you also immediately follow that up with the answer, that you know God is chipping away at you, He's chipping away those parts of you that look like you and replacing them with things that look more like him. Even your hardest day is his grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this image of your son that we see in the, in the face of Joseph. Lord, we thank you that Joseph is, is a picture of the greater king, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that although Joseph was a good person, Jesus is the perfect king, the great high priest, the just judge, the ruler of our heart, and the ruler of the universe. God, we pray that as we come to him, that we would seek to become more like him. Lord, just like Joseph displayed that he was worthy to rule over his brothers, we pray that in each one of our lives we would say, Jesus is worthy to rule over my day today. He is worthy to direct me today. He is worthy to be the one who leads me and gives me instruction today. He is worthy to be the one that I obey today. He is the one who provides my sustenance and my my food today in the way that you provide that in your word. God, I pray that you would please cause us to trust Jesus. Lord, I ask just as we considered earlier today, we would not seek vengeance just like Joseph did, that we would entrust others who offend us to God and allow him to carry out whatever it is that he will do in order to avenge us. Lord, I thank you that your word calls you the avenger on multiple occasions. Lord, I pray that as we consider those who sin against us, that we will not with our mouth or with our mind or with our keyboard in any way pursue vengeance. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the love of Christ who forgives sinners who have done much to oppose him. Lord, we pray that you would please bless us, help us to live in light of this truth,